Hey there. Hello. Let's just jump right in. We got a we got a lot to get through. Yeah, today we're going to be discussing at times reading pieces of when I think it's a really cool part anyway. <laughs> we'll we'll read uh, you know, pieces of snippets of and give our thoughts on a book called Black Shirts and Reds: Rational Fascism and the Overthrow of Communism by Michael Parenti. If you haven't read it yet, don't worry. It's a shorty. You could probably just pause and go do that in like a day and get back to us. But if you're like, nah, I'm not doing that, you're in the right place. We're going to give you the (laughs) TLDR. Yeah, for sure. And I definitely second that readability of this. So I'm a very slow reader. And actual dedicated reading days, this did not take me long. And then I went back, like I revisited, right? And I was able to pretty much skim through most of it in like a day. Yeah, yeah. It's super easy to wrap your head around. There's no really weird jargon or anything. It's it's very relatable. Yeah, that's, I think, a huge strength of this work. Uh, if we're going ahead and giving some ratings up top. <laughs> great stuff in terms of accessibility, in terms of not sounding like an asshole, Trying to make you be like, oh, what is, you know, critical Marxist subjectivity or something? I don't know. You know, like really weird stuff that you're just like, I don't I don't get it. What is some I mean, you know, some theory you do need to know at some point you got to look up and try to figure out what reification is and complicated things like that. But it's not everybody's like it's not great for everybody to see that first, you know? Exactly. Yeah, I think it's. I don't know if I'd say this is an introductory text, but it's maybe secondary level. Uh, Yeah, I would say this doesn't have a lot to reach out to non-leftists. I would say, I mean, you pretty much have to be convinced of leftism at least, but beyond, you know, and then probably be like at least sympathetic to socialism and communism. Yeah, I was thinking about this earlier, like what a good curriculum for approaching this book would be. And I was like, maybe open veins first and then this one, because open veins would really set you up for like seeing the horrors of capitalism, particularly in the third world and particularly as it relates to imperialism and all these like counter revolutions that have been fueled by the U S and then picking this book up, you'd be like, Oh yeah, that I did just see that happen. Yeah. That's a good point is open veins is great for enraging. And I think it's, it's written from such a, like regular person perspective. I don't know how to put that, but like, I mean, it's poetic almost. Yeah. And it's, it's captivating and it's like, it doesn't really tell you you need to be a communist or anything, but you come out of like, man, a lot of the shit I was told is fucked up. Yes. It's very eye opening. And I think that opens your eyes and this then peels back more layers. Right. Like I know the, you know, that I've been lied to a lot in what ways. All right, let's jump in. One disclaimer, my dog is freaking out from storms, so if you hear chaos in the background, it is him. He is cute, but not this cute. He's not cute enough to earn what he's doing right now, but that's fine. We're fighting for a world where he doesn't have to earn anything. He can just be and be valued for that. (laughs) Poor guy. Okay, chapter one, rational fascism. The descriptor here is, Fascism historically has been used to secure the interests of large capitalist interests against the demands of popular democracy. Then and now, fascism has made irrational mass appeals in order to secure the rational ends of class domination. As I started trying to summarize this chapter, I'm like, this really is a lot of the 
points we covered in our episode on fascism. So if you want to re-listen to that, you totally can. Basically goes over kind of the history of both Mussolini and Hitler's rises to power and how they are, you know, weirdly happening uh, parallel to a socialist rise in power. Yeah, it's like it's not two sides of the same coin, but it's like an equal and opposite reaction, like Newtonian shit, you know? And that's for a reason. We described uh, fascism as like capitalism when it's cornered or, you know, capitalism with the mask off. It's capitalism in reaction to, you know, a rise in worker militancy, a rise in leftism. Definitely. Like, basically, the economic cycle is workers start getting more rights. They start organizing. They start unionizing. They start winning labor issues. The companies are like, hey, I still need my profits, bro. And so they turn to these right-leaning forces to suppress labor. And that's, that's how you get fascism. Yeah, so he uses this example of fascist Italy, fascist Germany, as like the prototypical example of fascism in a corner, you know. But I think you can go beyond that. Like we've seen this before that time period. If you think back to the old Gilded Age, the strike breakers, them using like the Pinkertons and everything, setting tent villages on fire to, you know, smoke at literally smoke out striking workers. Before you have any sort of concept of true anti-communism, you have this anti-laborism there. You know, uh, after that, I mean, take your pick. All the gruesome things that this country and, and companies have done to, to fight against any sort of worker militant, you know, tendency of any sort. When capitalism realizes, hey, these guys are a threat to us and these niceties of individual rights, these pleasant liberal democratic values that we talk about when they're getting in the way of stomping down the workers who need to be put in their place the capitalists will just throw that out the window they don't give a shit about that unless it's convenient to them it's it's a narrative you don't hear much even when you do talk about like these horrible regimes like nazism and mussolini like you don't hear about the fact that like communists were oppressed like that's not never listed under the groups of oppressed people it's it's i mean not to diminish anything from the other groups but it's just like you're missing a piece of the story here that just does not get told yeah and it's an important part i think that we're familiar with we know about but like someone new coming to the story wouldn't know about is like how did the nazis really and the uh, Italian fascists get their start is by street fighting against communists. And, you know, even before that, I mean, like strike breaking and everything, you know, be, being in the employ of, of big business, but in the declining, in the ever weakening Weimar Republic, the Nazis were essentially used. I mean, that's where the term comes from stormtroopers. They were used as like shock troops, against like demonstrating communists and stuff and the communists have their own like fighting bands and stuff and it's just that the nazis won you know and so they got to take power yeah i mean i think it says a lot when you know the fucking stormtroopers were fucking breaking up strikes like okay maybe which side of strikes should you be on <laughs> yes exactly but people don't make this connection nowadays because i mean because that history is obscured in one you know for one reason and for another, people 
just don't connect modern day strike breaking with any sort of historical. I think he gets into it later with like the whole like Marxism can illuminate the world for you and see you can see connections between things that you otherwise wouldn't see. People don't people see so many things as like disconnected events. I mean, I will say I think he does a good job of tying it to maybe more current day conservatives at the end of the chapter. He talks about like, I mean, their rhetoric is ripped from the pages of fascism. He talks about Reagan-esque optimism, media-hyped crowd pleasers, convincing people that the government is the enemy, especially the social service sector, strengthening the repressive capacities of the state, instigate racist hostility. Like those are, that's the fucking playbook, man. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And try uh, doing it all while under this sort of uh, guise, and he gets into like how the fascists did this, but like under this guise of like, oh, we're actually, we're very revolutionary. Like, look at us making big changes, you know? In, in this one section, he talks about like, who did the fascists support? Because, you know, you'll, you'll always get this of like, oh, uh, they had, you know, they had socialism in their name and like, mm-hmm. oh, they... So that should be on the left. But like he kind of makes it clear, hey, the fascists, when they got into power, people don't like to talk about like what they did. They just say like, oh, they were evil. And and they were because they like killed millions of people. But they like pretend that that's their only policy. Whereas that their overall policy was pro-business, anti-union, anti any sort of cooperative economy or whatnot, worker co-ops, anything like that. Uh, they they were like relentless about slashing wages, uh, about increasing profits by that. They, they brought child labor in Italy. He talks about just like anything the, to to make the rich get richer. Yeah, completely funneling it all to big business, and it's almost like. And then he talks about how Hitler's portrayed as as very fanatical and almost like ascetic, and it's it's almost like not a cover up of like mustache twirling, but. an effort to portray them as like they are purely only racist and ideological instead of zooming out to see the larger picture of like no like hitler had a slush fund made up of defense contracts yeah yeah he was he was a war profiteer uh they they you know kind of make him out to be this bond villain or whatever but like where the hell did he get his bond villain like secret lair his fucking (laughs) castle you know with all the guard wolves or whatever the fuck uh like you know he got that from like fucking stolen money. Like he was, he was, it was, it was ripped off from the government. Yeah. And you know, if you want to look at the other side, okay, who the Nazis supported and who supported the Nazis, like we got some damning evidence there too of like, you know, you always hear like, Oh yeah, a few people were into Hitler and maybe, you know, what's that guy? The Edward the, the Prince. Eighth. Yes. Yes. I always just picture that guy from the King's speech because my brain is rotted. Um, <laughs> <laughs> handsome prince but but i mean you know you have major newspapers being like oh no, let's hear this guy out you have fucking randolph hearst who owned all the major newspapers being like yeah well let's have a fucking nazi column right i i thought that was hilarious and i i remember trying to find the kind of trying to find the op-eds if i could find them from uh herman goring in, in Hearst papers, like the, apparently they'd let them do <laughs> guest columns. Like I'm picturing a, like a really vapid like Sunday morning with Herman Gore. <laughs> like he's like, first I have my brunch, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like a stu- horrible like Atlantic Fashion or New column, Yorker piece. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a horrible little op-ed. 
Oh, that would be great. But yeah, like not just that, you know. Not a girl boss in Germany. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Like you had the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, Fortune. He named other papers too that had, you know, where the fascists had admirers. Uh, that people were saying, you know, the uh, what how we receive it in American history, people say, well, you know, the fascists made the trains run on time or something like that, to that effect. And that's what people were saying then, too. It's like, well, you know, well, they have their detractors, but they make things efficient, you know, and they're building this new democracy and stuff like that. And really, this only changes uh, once, like, the war clouds start gathering and he kind of phrases this as like once the expansionism of these fascist states starts colliding with the capitalist's own spheres of influence and saying, hey, actually, hey, buddy, this is our turf. Like, <laughs> You actually can't do that. Yeah. Love the oppression. Don't love the taking over my shit part. All right. Can we talk about this crazy play? Oh, yes. Let's do it. So this is in the section, uh, the rational use of irrational ideology. And he's kind of talking about how fascists you know one of the one of the elements of fascism is subsuming the individual to the will of the state it's like uh it's the characterization of war as the health of the state like we don't want peace we want everyone like mobilized we want everyone like being an organic part of the state it's very collaborationist you know it's trying to like hide the shitty elements of capitalism by saying no no no, we're all on the same team and that's kind of where he introduces this kind of bizarre uh, Nazi play. <laughs> uh, it's called Schlagetter. No idea. Sorry, German listeners. But they, they print a scene from it where, like, the dad is, like, old school and, like, the kid is, is the cool, hip fascist. And he's like, Dad, you don't even get it. Yeah, I love the dad. I stand the dad. He's asking questions like, what, what are you doing? Like, what, what is going on here? And he's just like, Dad, you don't even understand. Like, no one uses the slogans anymore. Class struggles over. Like, <laughs> come on, get with it. Try to be hip, Dad. <laughs> and yeah, no, it's brilliant. In the play, he says, the kid says, upper, lower, poor, rich. That always exists. Uh, none of us regards making money as the most important thing. We want to serve. That is such a telling way to put it of like money doesn't even matter or like, you know, that that's gross that you care that much about money and like putting it in those terms of just like, oh, we're all just people, you know, that kind of like kumbaya bullshit, but like serving a nefarious purpose. Yeah. And how many, you know, ideologies that are acceptable in polite society kind of have that little kernel, right? Uh, you know, mainstream Christianity will do this. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, don't be very material, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or even everyone has their place. Like, oh, you're on your path. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have a role to play, or like the whole workings of the universe, right? That's beyond our understanding. Or it's classic liberalism, right? Or just, or even you know, progressivism will still kind of fall into this sort of, hey, you know, we're all Americans, you know, and we 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 all, you know, we we can come together, and what unites us is greater than what divides us, and stuff like that. I think one of the great strengths that he points out of fascism is is its a, its ability to dupe people into believing that we are all on the same team and focus on that so much. You know, and there's a reason why we every sporting event in this country spends half an hour the the Department of Defense half hour at the beginning. <laughs> you know, with the with the jet flyovers mm-hmm. and the big huge flag and all there's a reason for that of all that cheerleading and everything is 
we want you to focus on being on the same team because while you're doing that and while you're, oh, we want to serve, we're toiling away to do our part. Who are you doing that for? You're making piles of money for the rich while you're thinking that you're actually, you know, doing your part on the team. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and even in like less politicized kind of views, like listeners, if you hang out with enough rich people at one point, they're going to say like being rich isn't easy. You know, like they're going to say more money, more problems to you. <laughs> hey, man, I'll trade trade you. <laughs> I today. know exactly. Like, give me your money then. Like, I'm sorry. You're so sad. <laughs> yeah. But, rich like, man's burden it comes up in that, too. It, it Definitely. Like there's this weird it's it's like that fucking uh, who was that guy that we read the charity guy that I hated. Carnegie. Carnegie. It's like, oh, I have yeah. such a responsibility. That kind of shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's bizarre. I, I mean, I would, I don't think I would want to see this play because obviously it's a Nazi play. But no, like, I don't. <laughs> if I just ended up time traveling to that time, I would go ahead and go see it. You know, <laughs> it sounds interesting in a horrible way. If I could sneak in for free, mm-hmm. I would not pay them. <laughs> no, no. The next section there, I think, was pretty great. Patriarchy and pseudo-revolution? Yes. Definitely. I mean, this gets to kind of who loses when you have fascism and why. Because, you know, the narratives we're told about, again, about these regimes is that, like, they're just pure evil. They have, like, little devil horns and they're just like, I love oppressing people. Um, Which, you know, some of them probably were sickos and did enjoy that. But the reasoning behind it is much more interesting. He starts off with homosexuality with with gay people you know you do now are hearing more about how many gay people died during the holocaust and it was very interesting because he talks about how like at first it was like kind of chill to be a gay nazi like they didn't really care but they used it as an excuse to clear ranks when the stormtroopers started talking about organizing and spreading the wealth and decrying decadence yeah, so there was, you know, and it was Nazi, so it was bad. It's and it was still not good. <laughs> all the way through. But um, there's a little strand of it called Strasserism or Strasserism, I don't know the German, but, mm. and essentially this was like the left wing portion of, of Nazism. Yeah. Okay. Uh, which, I mean, you know, really did see itself as a pure, like a third way that was going to do all the racist shit and everything. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> don't get me wrong. Super was also going to like do essentially socialism for the Volk, for the for Aryans. The white yeah. Okay. And, and that was kind of embodied in the SA, in the, in the brown shirts, the original street brawling thugs. And it's them and Ernst Strom, who is the like kind of chief. Uh, well, he's, he's their chief who he was openly homosexual. And this was just given a pass. And, and Hitler was kind of like, yeah, yeah, that's 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 you do pri- you. private matters, you know, <laughs> until basically the army came to him and said, hey, fucker, uh, we're the army. You are not going to supersede us and you better get your old thugs in place or else, you know, we're going to do a coup against you, basically. So in order basically to sew up like support from the conservative element, support from the army, support from like the SS, which was kind of budding at this time, uh, he was like, oh, fine. Yeah. And like, you're right. The excuse basically to clear ranks was they're degenerate homosexuals. And that was called the night of the long knives. And that's oh, when they yeah. just like went and fucking murdered, assassinated a whole bunch of people. Uh, he, he talks about Himmler having this real like 
homophobic bent to him and misogynist bent to him. He's just, you know, he's overall an asshole. I mean, Himmler, like he's top tier asshole. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, But but that's kind of where it stems from is like the Nazis weren't coming out of the gate saying, oh, let's kill all the gays or anything like that. They just got there because of convenience. Yeah. Yeah. And then he kind of moves on to talk about like women and, and it's similar, like absolutely a misogynist power structure but you have to like look at the structure part of that sentence like why are they misogynist well they need women home to like have lots of babies so they can have more soldiers and more workers to feed into their war machine yes and i like because this is like he's giving you angles without like telling you hey this is angles and i'm smart for knowing it but like this is this is uh like the origins of the family what he wrote was you know like uh the, the thing about the nuclear family is like hey if the nuclear family falls, if like the patriarchal father head of the household falls and the rest of it's gone too, like we have to support the patriarchy at home so that people say, well, the Fuhrer is the father of the nation. Exactly. And then I really love how he talks about, I guess, the way the fascists talk about revolution. I don't know. It's very creepy. Like you see this stuff happening now of (laughs) (laughs) implying that all of this stuff is like a new order and like, oh, we're totally going to change the game, like using revolutionary language, but around a fascist project. Like they absolutely did that. They absolutely tried to act like this was a a positive (laughs) shakeup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. When the right wing criticizes you and says, oh, you're socialist. But do you remember a party called the National Socialist Mm -hmm. Democrat? Yeah. And you're like, yeah, that, you know, they were literally trying to co-opt that, you know. (laughs) They were on the coattails. The most popular mass party in Germany at that time was the Social Democratic Party. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, you, that's what they were writing and that's what they're trying to pretend to be revolutionary by. Um, I like that he he kind of very succinctly to me at the beginning of this section, just to backtrack a little, uh, circled all of the traits of fascism as like being chauvinistic in terms of like kind of like nationalistic, you know, Uh, being racist, being sexist, being patriarchal. Like he's like, hey, all of this that it's doing is a way to defend capitalism. Like that, that it's, it's just like tools it's using as we were saying about the Nazis, how they didn't really fucking care till it came down to like, Oh, Hey, you know, uh, this works for us right now. Bam. Uh, homosexuality bad. I think it's kind of a, what, another way to think about our conversations in the past about the importance of intersectional solidarity to the left as like a way to combat this, you know? There's a way of saying, like, any time that we are fighting these things, we're fighting capitalism. Even if it's not, like, your primary, oh, I'm most concerned about this, you're still taking part in it. Yeah, because you, again, you look at the reasons behind oppressing those groups. You're oppressing women so they can have more babies. That's defo happening. You're oppressing gay groups so that they don't have access to, like, health care. Like, that's definitely happening. You're also doing it to, like, enforce gender norms more. Like... Mm-hmm. And reinforce the family structure that is like your microcosm of the state, the almighty state, you know? Yeah. And like, you know, race tensions, too. Those are stoked to cause fear and to make you turn more towards the police state. Yeah. It gives you an other to fight against. You know, you must. I know. Hey, this guy. Right. He's a banker and he makes more money than you. But 
he's of your race. He's of the Volk and you've got to fight. And that's, that's kind of what it all ties down to is, is building up enemies. And so left projects, I think that try to ignore these oppressions through like any sort of like reductionism or whatever. Right. We're just like, Oh, it's just class. You know, you're, you're just putting big blinders on yourself for that. Or if you're even worse than that, if you're trying to make, you know, crude appeals to the masses with these bigotries and saying, oh, I've got to reach the white working class. So we're just going to dabble a little bit in the racism. <laughs> just for a good. little bit of racism. You're just doing the work of the fascists. Like you're, you're working for the other team and that sort of a project. Don't fall for it. It's doomed. It's bad. It's counter revolution. I mean, it's, it's against what we're doing. Yeah, definitely. Can we talk about Gnome? Let's talk about Gnome. Oh so, my gosh, Gnome gets his ass ripped in this book like 10 times. Page 17 is his first appearance. The rise of corporations was in fact a manifestation of the same phenomena that led to fascism and Bolshevism, which sprang out of the same totalitarian soil. And I wrote in my notes in the margin, whoa, what the hell, Gnome? Dude, Gnome <laughs> repeatedly takes L's in this book. He really does. It's it's harsh. And, and I mean, I don't know. That's a bad take, right? Like, unless he's saying, I could, okay, most charitable reading. Let's <laughs> let's try to defend our guy let's here. Let's put our gnome glasses on. He's not our guy, but like, he's, maybe he's saying that out of the same sort of sufferings of a people, I mean, people have to be desperate to turn to, people have to be really, really oppressed to turn to fascism, to turn to communism. Maybe, but no, I, I don't think that's what he's meaning. I think he's meaning, and it, it's made clear later, that he's meaning, oh, they're totalitarian. They're, you know, bad. They boss people around. I mean, come on. Like, this guy is a world-class academic. You can disagree with him at any point. He's a brilliant mind. And he's great at analyzing media, so it's really surprising to me that he falls for all these, I mean, tropes that I think the next chapter gets into of, of anti-communism on the left he's great at analyzing yeah he's great at analyzing media he's great at breaking down like linguistic syntactical like minutiae like this guy is smarter than this so yeah. he's being anti-communist by doing it because he's not just like fucking up even if he's doing it from <laughs> where we kind of know his heart lies based on what we know about him, what I'm assuming where his heart still lies. I haven't talked to him. Sure. Yeah, no, I think he's still an anarcho-communist. I think he's still an anarcho-communist, but like, it's again, that kind of unity issue we always come up against is like, you can't, you can't bring all of us down with that man. Like not right now. <laughs> You're doing the other team's work for them. Yeah. And I think in this, in these instances where he makes these pronouncements, he could do better in terms of left unity. Like, you should be doing better. All right. Next section is basically kind of revisiting. All right. Who who's all cozying up to <laughs> fascists? A who's who of assholes. <laughs> basically. Yeah. Basically all, not all, but a, a large <laughs> amount of fascists in Italy and Nazi Germany were just like not tried. Like, and which I didn't know. Cause you think about, you know, the Nuremberg trials and you're like, Oh, we got him. Apparently, we only got, like, what, a few? Yeah, no, you got you got the high, high ups. But beyond that, and meanwhile, in the GDR, what were they doing? They were removing 80% of judges and teachers and officials. Like, psh, that wasn't happening. Mm -mm. You know, in West Germany, for sure. You know, in, in the whole rest of the, the West, I mean, you had 
the Vatican-backed Ratline project that was getting Nazis smuggled out of Europe to, you know, to Argentina or whatever. So yep. Definitely, basically, the denazification process really didn't exist. And not to say there weren't exceptions on the other side. I mean, the Soviet Union had its own version of, like, Operation Paperclip, uh, where the United States, like, drew out mm. uh, Soviet, sci- not Soviet, uh, Nazi scientists out and everything and used them for the rocket project. Like the Soviet Union had its own version of that uh, to try to get German scientists or whatever. But basically they just put them in a gulag and said, do science for us. And that was it. You know, it wasn't like you got to live for free sort of thing. Even to the point where people were working on like presidential campaigns. Mm. Like that was, it was shocking. What the fuck? Yeah. You had American companies like, Oh, little small mom and pop operations like Chase National Bank, DuPont, <laughs> Ford, GM, you know, getting to collect from the government after their like plants that had been producing war material for the Nazi army. <laughs> Insane. And the Department of Defense comes out and tells its flyboys, hey, don't bomb these coordinates because that's where the GM facility is. That's insane. How are you going to be making weapons for the fucking Nazis Yeah, and get away with it? And then, so, okay, so those bombers say, okay, well, you know, we're not going to go after that position. They go and bomb. I don't know. I, I, I kind of feel kind of mm, humanist about this or like less us versus them about it. But like just regular German civilians. Yeah. They go and bomb them in their housing blocks and everything to avoid your fucking munitions plant that's actually you know fueling the war effort and killing allied soldiers they go and bomb some somebody's grandma's house instead those people are using your place as an air raid shelter it's crazy and they they got to collect money from the government as damages for bombing their place they got paid to make nazi weapons and then we also funded some terrorism by we i mean the cia not me personally yeah we friend (laughs) of the show dave and dan your colleagues down at Langley. They're toasting right now, like, hey, that's us. What is So what's our canon? Are, are Dave and Dan CIA, NSA, FBI, have we ever specified? I don't even know. I think they're kind of all of them at Dave one point or another. Call in at some point. You have our numbers. Call in. I'm sure Tell you us do. what branch you are. We'd love <laughs> to hear it. They just hack into the recording, into the Zoom chat. <laughs> Live. You guys. They just pop in. <laughs> uh, we cannot confirm or deny. Maybe we should add a third one so they can have one from each branch. Ooh, wow, yeah, that could be that could be pretty good. That'll be a listener contest of your name could be yeah one exactly. of the surveillance people. You have to give us the best review ever on iTunes. <laughs> but yeah, we totally funded terrorism. Uh, this is we visited this in Operation Condor. Um, kind of its roots in the World War II stay behind networks and stuff, and they mention it here of. Uh, the Masonic P2 Lodge and Operation uh, Gladio. And what they kind of, and we're going into more detail here, I guess, than I did in, in covering this initially. But he talks about the strategy of tension, if you've ever heard of that. Yeah, yeah. So basically just like kidnapping people, it seems like, and bombings and assassinations. Yeah, the whole thing was to do domestic terrorism against your own country and then when people started digging into it find ways to like pin it on the red army faction pin it on various communist organizations and say oh look at them things are unsafe you've got to turn to strong 
leadership and you know the basically the the fascist or quasi uh fascist alternative yeah i mean it's ridiculous like the amount of blood on the hands of anti-communism is uh pretty pretty big (laughs) yes yeah the deaths of capitalism they say oh millions and bajillions have been killed by communism first of all no but second of all Let's (laughs) Let's <laughs> turn the camera around. Yeah, you want to talk numbers? Like, yeah. <laughs> he, uh, we'll get to it later, but he does a section where he's he like. He does. I mean, it's the next chapter. Let's jump into it because I don't have anything else on this one. All right, let's do it. All right. Uh, I'm just going to give some numbers. Just kind of jumping around between the first few pages of this chapter. In the Philippines, when we fucked around there with McKinley, uh, slaughtered 200,000 Filipino women, men, and children. Quick list of countries. If you ever wondered how many countries we've invaded. I do all the time. It's not even a complete list, but go ahead. <laughs> not even a complete no. list, but we've got Hawaii, Cuba, Puerto Rico, Guam, Mexico, Soviet Russia, Nicaragua, Honduras, Dominican Republic. Like, that's just a smattering. Uh, Laos and Cambodia, Vietnam, Korea. China in the Boxer Rebellion. Yeah. Chile, uh, Brazil, Grenada, South Africa, Western Sahara, Zaire, Turkey. Like, so many, so many, guys. We just mm. did it all. Hmm. Yeah. And it leads off this chapter I love with just he's he's great it's this is sorry uh, as a history teacher i'm like damn if i could get somebody to write a thesis statement like this that's perfect he does it great every time because he leads off and he says uh, u.s foreign policy is devoted to the suppression of revolutionary governments and radical movements around the world and that and then he just like says you know proof exhibit a b c like <laughs> yeah he has to fucking z and then adds a new alphabet like yeah <laughs> yeah a a b a z yeah <laughs> Like, he gives numbers here. We got, what, 2 million. I had to look at the zeros and determine how many there were. That's how many. 2 million North Koreans, uh, 3 million Vietnamese, 500,000 in Laos and Cambodia, 1.5 million in gold. Like, there's just too many. I didn't add them all up. Millions and millions of humans, of people whose lives were cut short in pursuit of counter-revolution and in the name of freedom is how he prefaces it. You can say, well, hey, you know, I oppose that. I don't like that. That's not good. But China is doing this or but North Korea is doing that or but whoever. But you know what? You're a citizen of the United States. And when he says in the name of freedom, he's saying in your name. And he's saying you're a citizen of this country. The country ostensibly that you have the most influence over is this one. This is the thing that you can change, right? I don't know. This is how I think of it sometimes when people Mm. say, well, what about Russia or what about whatever? And it's like, yeah, maybe they're being an asshole, you know, but like as an American, I should be trying to change what America is doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like in therapy, you can't control other people's actions, but you can control how you respond. Yes. Yeah. That's a that's a little bit. A little bit of of um, praxis that slipped through the self-care <laughs> filter that they usually have there. Uh, and it's all, it's all like kind of sold to us, he says, kind of in this myth of like protecting U.S. interests or... Mm, let's talk about that. Thwarting aggression. The presumptions of power section I thought was really, I mean, powerful. Not to just repeat the word, but... Okay, so basically... These are very handy for when you have a militaristic family member (laughs) (laughs) or an acquaintance who's just like, I think that's 
all those numbers you just gave me are totally fine because, all right, option one, they say, we have the right to define how other countries run themselves. Why? Why? There's no, there's no law that says that. No, he just basically says, no, that's just you doing that because you're stronger. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Okay, fine. Besides, we have a right to do that. We have to protect our national interests. We've talked about this one on the show before. Who? Who is that? Ladies and gentlemen, everything else. Like, do you have a national interest in the in what oil prices are in the United Arab Emirates? You have no idea. You you, you could wake up one day and they're twenty cents more, twenty cents less. You have you have no clue, and it wouldn't affect your life in the least because you're not freaking the uh, CEO of uh, Shell Oil. You're 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 not one of these multinationals. You don't you don't have that sort of connection. And when they say, "Oh, this is this is for American interests," it's for the board of executives or something. But it's not some you. Some Americans, yeah, <laughs> the people who run the place. But like you're the you know the person who t- picks up your trash, uh, the person uh, you pay at the movie theater, the person that you regular people in your life this is not them they don't give a damn and you don't either because you're a normal person (laughs) all right next point well we have a moral obligation to protect democracy and these (laughs) these terrorists these revolutionaries are messing it up what do you say to that that's why we must side with saudi arabia noted democratic ally of the united (laughs) states our best friends. We've, we've got it. We've got to side with um, who else? Uh, Bahrain, uh, Kuwait. Uh, there's just so many <laughs> allies of ours that are charitably described as less than democratic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. What about this? Well, I get if a country wants to change things up, but shouldn't they do it peacefully? Let's follow the rules, please. What is the state trying to do in the meantime? Like, you know, these revolutions are trying to dramatically and sometimes violently change the rules all of a sudden. But maybe that's because like every time they try to change the rules peacefully, they get stomped in by a violent state that doesn't care what it fucking does as long as they can continue their hyper exploitation. Yes. Um, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but this is one of my favorite quotes from this book. Capitalism condemns, Quote, only those who act against an unjust status quo, not those who use violence to preserve it. Yes. Holy shit, that's good. And this is the crux of the next section of whose violence is that the U.S. and, you know, Western imperialist core nations will say, oh, revolutionary violence. This is it's it's bad. There's there's violence. right? It's not good. <laughs> but yeah, the reactionary violence of imperialist states of states held up by American empire or serving it or what have you though the violence that they visit on people trying to demand reform that's not mentioned no no we don't ever look back to count those bodies and even he says kind of like social revolution generally starts out peacefully yeah, why would you want to jump to war? Nobody likes it. It's kind of, yeah, it's too much. Honestly, you're doing too much. But then it gets crushed, and then when they say, okay, well, hell, they're just going to attack us. If we try to be peaceful, we're going to 
fight back. Then, oh, then, ooh, then you're a terrorist. Then you're a violent, you know, revolutionary. Your, your means don't justify the ends or what have you, and you're not good. There's a shout out to Kerala, which was kind of fun. Yeah, I saw that. And, and he, he's clear in pointing out, like, hey, this is because the communists were, like, building this up, you know? We had an episode on this, so if you want to go back and listen to it. But, you know, long story short, they managed to drastically improve their life expectancy, literacy, uh, all these factors by implementing communism, guys. Like, it... <laughs> It yeah. sounds it sounds simple, but that's what they did. But it is because he says, like, you know, it doesn't take like the Large Hadron Collider. It doesn't take like you know nationalizing Amazon because you have the, like, these humongous piles of wealth. Like he just says, it takes political will and a mobilization of popular class power, and that's I think the very scary thing to the capitalists is that they at some point on some level realize that I have built my castle upon sand, that I have such untold wealth and everything that I think it's going to give me everything in the world. But if everyone bands together against me, no matter how much my, my wealth seems to exceed theirs and everything, and it does, even with their just meager human flesh and bone, they can still take me on. Like yeah, that's the weakness. So many. Yeah. And, and, and it just takes, like, popular mobilization. It's just this huge secret weapon that we have that they don't want us to, to use. And instead, they, they kind of, you know, twist that into their own, like, fake mass movement of, again, getting us all on the same team, getting us mm -hmm. all invested in the quote-unquote economy. Like, they have to construct this elaborate fabric to keep us loosely tied together so we don't notice, like, how tied together we are through our struggle. For sure. And I like in the end of this section, in the who's violent section, he kind of like calls out U.S. aid, like foreign aid programs mm -hmm. and stuff. And he's kind of saying like, these guys try to act like they are helping people, but they are really actually fucking things up, undermining the local markets, driving out small farmers, where they are building up infrastructure and stuff, that's really like a roadmap that they're building, like the foundation for future multinational corporations to come in and just bleed the place dry. Oh, completely. Like, remember in Open Veins, they built a whole rail system, and then they're like, actually, JK, this is for transporting, like, minerals and shit. It's not to, like, help you get around. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, blam, here it is. We, you know, oh, we're going to aid you, but really... They're in it for the money. So, yeah, from there he goes on to kind of, he rehashes some of the same points, which I think pretty good examples and everything. Uh, there's the old Cold War State Department head, uh, George Kennan, who is pretty honest about communism. <laughs> and he's just like, these guys, they're complete assholes. The communists, they're essentially traitors. They're terrible. They are, quote, People who are committed to the belief that the government has direct responsibility for the welfare of the people. <laughs> what idiots. Yeah. And he's just like, hey, if if we can't do like liberal democracy or give people rights and shit, 
small price to pay for stopping those dirty reds, you know? Like <laughs> he's like that that clearly would go out the window. Yeah, this other guy, uh Samuel P. Huntington from good old Harvard says mm. basically the same thing. Like he's defending lesser evils such as Pinochet and apartheid. Yeah, and anyone who's been like tortured by the Pinochet regime or, you know, brutally repressed by the apartheid regime can tell you like there's not a less, you know, there there's That's a that's that a is, pretty evil That is too evil. evil. It's lesser to nothing <laughs> in terms of evilness. I thought that the section was pretty good at like calling out kind of the annoying sort of like oh this this guy he's a dictator but like he's not really bad he's just kind of authoritarian or whatnot like the benign mm-hmm. dictators versus the really terrible awful dictators who are like oh really heads are rolling over there and the distinction is left and right wing I mean like right wing dictators that we installed yes <laughs> <laughs> they're all the guy way. there and they're really you know they're a strong man and they're there to make sure that their country you know sometimes they break a couple heads and stuff but like they're there to steer their country on the right path and then the other guy's maniacal this guy is like you know uh, office rocker you know he makes everybody get the same haircut and just <laughs> anything that you can kind of exotify this person with uh, but, but this is the left-wing person who's obviously office rocker because he's trying to make everyone be paid the same or something he's trying to provide for his people what just ugh. insane <laughs> uh and then the last little bit of this section <laughs> he talks about friend of the show glad he's dead george hw bush lecturing none other than nelson mandela on the virtues of nonviolence. i forgot about this and the man hate him as much as you want and for all the iraqi blood on his hands you should hate him a lot but hate him as much as you want he's got balls of fucking steel <laughs> for quoting Martin Luther King to Nelson Mandela. Wow. Wow. That is like, there should be a term for mansplaining, but like left-splaining. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just astonishing. Oh. You know, he met death far too late in life, but uh, I just love that little gem. I'm just so like, ridiculous. How devoid of shame can you be? <laughs> How how unaware are you? Like what what is happening? <laughs> All right, this next section I basically called greatest section. Yeah, why? That's the freedom section. The freedom. He's a freedom guy. He's such a freedom I guy. Love it. I was oh like, oh my gosh, you'd be best friends. <laughs> so he's he's kind of talking in this section like how people in these revolutionary countries they support this revolution because you know. They were oppressed, and then they get liberated through these revolutionary movements. You know, he gives the example of Cuba, he gives the example of Vietnam, and he's like, shit sucked. And so they freed themselves. And then the other side of that is the narrative that we're fed, which is like, we are providing the freedom here. Like, actually, no, ours is freedom. Yeah. And he's he's kind of counters that and says, to the extent that revolutionary governments construct substantive alternatives for their people, they increase human options and freedom. So he's like, actually, this is freedom. You know, you're like, oh, I don't know. How is this freedom? But like, think about 
these popular freedoms that these governments extend, and he kind of details them here, women's rights, self, national self-determination, economic betterment, health and human life, and an end to oppressions in terms of ethnicities or class. Like These are things you are freed from in this new system. Absolutely. Like it is, we've talked about this so many times on the show is that, you know, freedom to what? And at the end of the day, capitalism is freedom to pile money up if you're lucky enough. And the other side, our side is actual freedom, freedom to pursue the life you want to live without having to worry about how to feed yourself, you know, how you'll afford your next doctor's visit. You know, what happens if you get fired because your boss is just a dick, like all those things. You have actual freedom. And it's disingenuous for the United States to be talking about, oh, we want to bring freedom to this communist country because when's the last time you heard the United States talking about bringing, bringing freedom to Saudi Arabia? When's the last time you heard them talking about bringing freedom to any of their other right-wing client states and any of the other authoritarian dictatorships that they're propping up? Israel? Yeah. Oh, uh, Hosni Mubarak in Egypt was our guy there for 30-something fucking years. And then, oh, he gets, you know, he gets fucking taking the task in the Arab Spring and we go looking at it like, wow, damn, Twitter's doing a revolution over there. Crazy. And it's like, <laughs> motherfucker, you're the guy who put him in power. You fuck did are you this. talking about? <laughs> the Iraq war. We turn around, turn around all of a sudden saying, oh, wow. What's Saddam, going on over there? It's he's crazy. Just, he's this madman dictator. I mean, like you have Donald Rumsfeld up here saying, oh, he's a madman, he's a butcher, he's all these sorts of things. When back in the 70s, he was saying, I met with Saddam, he seemed like a nice, upstanding guy to me, because back then he was on our side. It's like these, you know, these guys have no, absolutely no shame. This is how they can go and quote Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela <laughs> is because they have absolutely no fucking shame. The memories of goldfish, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and they know, and they know that they've done a good enough job with their corporate media to distract everybody. Yeah, they're counting on us being distracted. They're counting on us not remembering. Yeah. They're counting on it. We're tuning into the game this year, but we don't know the entire year of the team. We follow them whenever the Super Bowl's on. That's it. <laughs> okay, so we talked about how do you measure freedom. Now we talk about how do you measure pain. Um you get this a lot of, well, you know, the violence isn't worth it. You know, communism has killed however many people. And this flips it around says, how many people's fucking capitalism killed? And not just killing, but also suffering, you know, like long work hours, child labor, um, just general exploitation. How do you measure that? That's, yeah, I, I think this was powerful to me in what it didn't explain, basically because it was like, you can't, you know, you can't really codify it. You can't really quantify it. It's, you're never going to know. Not going to know the potential that you lost. Not going to know this kid you threw down a mine and had him because he was smaller enough to, to get in or whatever. Like, you're not going to know what he could have done. He's, he's, he's done. He's washed out, you know. Stunted lives, just suffering, people doing what they don't want to do because they have to make a living. There's so many, I mean, like you, you have, you as a listener have this experience in some form or fashion in your life, in your own life or people, you know, it's there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's the dichotomy of like, absolutely. The third world has it way fucking worse. That's what we're talking about. You know, children going into mines and stuff like that and sweatshops and all yeah, that stuff, which still exists. I mean, the global South is still like the being hyper exploited as you're listening to this, but absolutely. 
But you can also apply this to your everyday life, too, of, you know, like, oh, like, why did I choose the job I have? Well, it's because I didn't want to starve on the fucking street. Is that normal? Yeah. And and that is not to draw a distinction between you and someone who's suffering in a lithium mine in Africa. It's to connect you. Yeah, that's that's your struggle is theirs. The person who is putting both of you through that. That's who we're trying to point you against. <laughs> All right, then we get some Cuba shout outs. Loved some of these stats. They treated 13,000 children from Chernobyl. They had 25,000 students from the third world studying on scholarships in Cuba. They have some of the highest per capita rates of doctors teachers art instructors sports instructors like these are the numbers you don't hear about when you hear about cuba you don't get to hear about how they raised literacy by you know magnitudes when they got in power you don't hear about any of that you just hear oh it's terrible there oh it's a dictatorship shout out to fidel castro i remember (laughs) i was out with my friends drinking at a bar when he died and i was like oh man he died pour one out um yeah he guaranteed cited all of those statistics off the top of his head. He's a brilliant man, far sharper of a mind than I'll ever be. But yeah, like the, and, and he juxtaposes this with before where people in the rural areas of Cuba were living in makeshift shacks without minimal sanitation where malnourished children went barefoot in the dirt, uh, suffered the familiar plague of parasites common to the third world. I mean, like this is what they're coming from. And then that's after the revolution where they end up. Again, to draw it back to open veins and, you know, general imperialism, like that wasn't an accident where they started either. Yeah, you know, that's that's the the weak links of capitalism and imperialism seem to be where the where the actual revolution takes place. And it's, it's because that that's where it's that's where it's like claws have sunk the deepest. And that's where the bloodletting has been the most intense. And so that's where people are going to rise up from. Not an accident. I like how he says here that Cuba's sin isn't a lack of democracy. It's that, and here's his words here, it has tried to develop an alternative to the global capitalist system, an egalitarian socioeconomic order that placed corporate property under public ownership, abolished capitalist investors as a class entity, and put people before profits and national independence before IMF servitude. That's the real problem. We can't have people saying that that's an option. If they do, you're going to start losing these outposts, these like places where your whole enterprise has been putting its claws in. You're going to start being hemmed in more and more, and you're going to get less of those like juicy hyper-exploitative bits to bring to bribe your own workers. And as that happens, as that sort of like, as you get weaned off of that and your workers back home get madder and madder because you can't give them anything, you're going to start facing a revolutionary potential at home. It's all over. And they know that. That's why they've been since World War II and before playing this, you know, global game of empire. It's not for fun it's not just some place to send your second sons it's like a way to guarantee that you're going to continue to make money definitely all right next let's uh we got to clean house a little because you know what we've got (laughs) what do we have 
We have some anti-communism on the left. Oh, whoa. Seriously? <laughs> I had no idea. Well, first, <laughs> I think it would be helpful to define the left because for me, I define, and I think this is because now the spaces, the circles I run in, I'm, you know, for good or for evil, <laughs> I view the left as more communist. I view the left as more anarchist. Progressive is the most center I get these days, I guess, in terms of who I'm following on Twitter. <laughs> and I think Parenti here is being a little more generous or maybe old fashioned than that of including like just, just the left, like not Republican. Yeah. He's talking about Democrats here, basically. So when, when we use that language, that's who we're talking about. Like sock them somewhat too. And mm -hmm. that sort of vein people who are uncomfortable with communism or socialism. I mean, a lot of this gets into kind of rhetorical logic and the circles and knots people tie themselves into to say like, oh, like I, I'm not racist and I, you know, want people to, you know, be more taken care of, but, you know, X, Y, Z. Yeah, I really like his opening if we could. So he gives like this damned if you do, damned if you don't thing of the Soviet Union. That is the exact note that I wrote in the margins, by the way. <laughs> Which I think encapsulates to most Americans what you received about the Soviet Union in your upbringing. I've heard almost every one of these things in reference to, if not the Soviet Union, as some, some sort of socialist or communist project. It's fascinating. If the Soviets refused to negotiate a point, they were intransigent and belligerent. If they appeared willing to make concessions, this was but a skillful ploy to put us off our guard. By opposing arms limitation, they would have demonstrated their aggressive intent. But when, in fact, they supported most armament treaties, it was because they were mendacious and manipulative. If the churches in the USSR were empty, this demonstrated that religion was suppressed. But if the churches were full, this meant the people were rejecting the regime's atheistic ideology. If the workers <laughs> went on strike, as happened on infrequent occasions, this was evidence of their alienation from the collectivist system. If they didn't go on strike, this was because they were intimidated and lacked freedom. A scarcity of consumer goods demonstrated the failure of the economic system. An improvement in the consumer supplies meant only that the leaders were attempting to placate a restive population and so maintain a firmer hold on them. Insane. <laughs> I mean, I've heard all of this shit that's so fucking funny. It's just such a great analysis of the way... That these uh these governments are, are held to an impossible standard. Yeah, and, and 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 you still see this. Any sort of actually existing social state, no matter what criticism you have of it, still faces these sorts of uh, constraints in in the Western media. I mean, you know, uh, North Korea, Cuba, Vietnam, China, they're all over the place in terms of what they're doing in their country. But like, they still face this sort of like impossible criteria from Western media. Yeah, criteria we do not apply to our own country, for fucking sure. Okay, what's next? Gnome gets another L here. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, again, does this very sinister characterization of, of the left, of these people are rising to power on the backs of mass popular mo movements, and then, quote, beat the people into submission. What the fuck, Gnome? This is his characterization of, like, the Soviet Union. The entirety of it. He just says, oh, yeah, you came, you know, you, you, you rose up, you did a revolution, and then boom, you turned on everyone. 
<laughs> Suddenly, you're just as bad as the other guys. Like, I, you're not a czar, so I think you're good. <laughs> this is a, and, and this is what's kind of strange about this. This is a guy that went to like Hanoi, that went to North yeah. Vietnam, and like did you know teaching stuff. He he went to like to lecture. In, Viet- in North Vietnam during the Vietnam War, North Vietnam, which was allied to the Soviet Union, what is he doing? I don't know. I'm wondering, like, when were these quotes? I have a lot of questions about this. Like, what's going on? I don't know. Do you need to talk? Are you okay? <laughs> what is that? What is that? That's in Z Magazine, 95. October of 1995. So. Yeah, so that's fairly. I mean, the book was what, 96? It's around there, yeah. And I think he correctly calls him out for poorly framing. This collapse of the Soviet Union saying, oh, you know, just some communist thugs were power hungry initially and then they like quickly switch sides to the right wing. And Parenti is accurate in saying like it took decades of changing leadership and changing material circumstances and everything for the socialist project in the Soviet Union to be brought down. And even then, in those collapsing days, only some people became, like, outright capitalists. Like, there were people through the whole process that were like, no, 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 let's, like, not do that. And furthermore, like, throughout most of the process, some skirmishes aside, pretty nonviolent. Like, if if the shoe was on the other fucking foot, as we have just talked about in the fascism chapters, that would not have been the case. If you have communists trying to take over, oh, no, they're going to fucking smush you into the dirt. And when the shoe was on the other foot in terms of, like, the failed coup and stuff, Yeltsin mm-hmm. didn't hold back with, 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 with fucking tanks and shit, shooting at the parliament buildings and everything. Like, yeah, I didn't know about this. Yeah, well, we're, gonna, we're, we're saving the meat of it for a future follow the Soviet mm-hmm. Union dramatic to at least parter for that, but... <laughs> <laughs> You know, Noam Chomsky's saying, oh, these power-hungry reds, you know, rising on the backs of this popular movement. And he uses this line, and I, I took it from him. I, you know, this is where I got this line. Is <laughs> It's kind of crazy how those, like, you know, power-hungry reds always looking to, you know, put themselves in the upper echelons of power. Like, weird how they, like, always side with the powerless. Kind of strange. Like, why would yeah, they do yeah. that? <laughs> <laughs> As opposed to, you know... The Nazis cozying up to big industry. Like, hmm. <laughs> yeah, you could skip a few steps by just doing that instead of, you know, going <laughs> yeah, to Yeah, there the... was an option there. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, yeah, no, that's a perfect point is, you know, how are they being nefarious by doing that? Yeah. What is your evil plan? Like, I'm going to feed all the children. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give health care to everyone. <laughs> if that's what it takes to be evil, then draw a fucking goatee on me. I'm in. We got to start. <laughs> So, you know, the early, you know, they started with the League of the Just and all that. And so we got to come up with like an evil version of that to do communism nowadays since we're the bad guys now. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) The Legion of Doom. (laughs) Skeletor actually just wanted health care. Not a lot of people know that about him. Rehabilitate Skeletor. <laughs> was he in the? I'm thinking of you know. I said Skeletor, but it's because they hung out in a skull. I don't actually remember who was in the League of Doom or whatever. I'm sure there's a Skeletor. Uh, communist <laughs> comic book enthusiasts, hit us up. Okay, I think he gets into a bit of the branding discussion too of of how you're gonna get red baited anyway by the by the right. So like, why the fuck are you tearing down the left? Yeah. 
he, he gives the examples of the CIO purging their leadership of just the red scares in general of the American democratic action group, all these, you know, Oh, Hey, Hey, hey we hate communists. Like we're, we're very anti-communists, you know, what, what, what is their reward? They get called com- Joe Biden gets called a communist every fucking day. And God, how I wish that were true. Commandante Joe Biden <laughs> leading the glorious revolution. <sighs> Not he does happen. look like Skeletor. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give him that. Uh, we're got, we got to we got to socialize the means of production, Mac. <laughs> My only Joe Biden impression element is Mac. That's all I've got. Yeah, that's pretty much it for me, too. Maybe <laughs> malarkey, throw that in there. I know he likes that. The dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, that's a bunch of malarkey. <laughs> I don't know. I don't got it. But anyway, he's not a communist. But, like, yeah, be as anti-communist as you like. You're still going to get smeared as it if you're anything to the left of Joseph Goebbel. Uh, the perfect example in the news lately about forgiving student loans, like, they forgave a pittance it's a fraction of amount and only if you met these qualifications all these hoops to jump through and guess who's mad at them everybody yeah <laughs> ten thousand freaking dollars oh yay you can take you can take one class for you can take you can take one class and Literally. get through like the first midterm and then they're like sorry you gotta keep re-up your subscription man like oh. <laughs> insane uh, let's see. Dunks and Orwell, which I always love that. Good. You know, uh, he said, and, and I like this because he frames Orwell's, you know, oh, brave stand. I am bravely <laughs> being anti-communist. Like, bro. You mean like everyone else? Yeah, you're in an anti-communist society. The whole thing. <laughs> you are washing it. You are a fish swimming through water, and you don't realize you're breathing in the water. Like, I mean, he's, he's he's like the J.K. Rowling of his day of like, look how brave I am for being a bigot. It's like, I mean, okay, yeah. congratulations. And, and, and I love this because it's like, it's totally relevant to this day is like, you know, because people, like you said, J.K. Rowling or whatever is, this is still a tried and true pastime of the American right, of liberals or whatever saying unpopular opinion, but, you know, trans people don't deserve rights or whatever. Like, <laughs> and, and it's just. No, dude, you're just saying what everyone else in your fucking society with positions of power think. And just because people on Twitter are going to give you shit because you are an asshole doesn't mean you're oppressed or anything like that. You're going to be fine. (laughs) It's that one. Have you seen the tweet where it's like the woman like has a sticker on her forehead that's a target? And she's like, this is what it's like to be a conservative woman in America. And someone comments and is like, I mean, yes, because you put that target on yourself. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Orwell, a fucking loser. <laughs> good, good. I'm glad this is a two parter so I can leave that in. <laughs> uh, I'm here all week. Oh, God. I love this fucking quote from Murray Bookchin, a noted anti communist anarchist. So, like, again, in our own goddamn house, we really need to get these people in line. I do want to do a Murray Bookchin episode in the future. You've ever okay. you've seen the things online where it's like Google Murray Bookchin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's on like the a list. meme. He's he's a he's a narco supposed to be a narco communist or a narco like federative. I mean so is Noam. Yeah. So he's in that vein. Apparently he once 
derisively referred to my concern for, quote, the poor little children who got fed under communism. I love how he puts his words. <laughs> like, hey, this is this guy being an asshole. <laughs> like, sorry, I care about feeding children. That seems like baseline shit, but you'd be surprised. <laughs> you'd be surprised. And it's because people love to discount the actual achievements of communism. And we'll get to this a little more in detail here. But I really like this quote. So this is one of my, I'm going to read it mm. sections. Do it. And we're talking about the Soviet Union. And we've done enough episodes on it that I think this encapsulates sort of my view on it. The Soviet Union, a nation that endured a protracted civil war and a multinational foreign invasion in the very first years of its existence, and that two decades later threw back and destroyed the Nazi beast at enormous cost to itself. In the three decades after the Bolshevik Revolution, the Soviets made industrial advances equal to what capitalism took a century to accomplish, while feeding and schooling their children rather than working them 14 hours a day, as capitalist industrialists did, and still do in many parts of the world. That last part is what I want to, like, tattoo on people's chests. Just, like, they did it, and also they took care of people. Like, people act like that's not possible. Like, and, and if you think about it, like, okay, let's let's play. Let's play this game. He's talking about, okay, they went from fucking serfs to in how many decades? Three decades? To pushing back Nazis? Yeah. To being the MVP in that fight. Okay, like let's okay, surf equivalent in the United States. What would that be? Colonial times probably. I mean sharecroppers from the eighteen hundreds. Eighteen hundreds sharecroppers. Okay, give you three decades on that. Where where are you at? You're in the nineteen twenties. Because you had sharecroppers all throughout. I mean, you're, I mean, I mean you're yes, like basically yes. there. And it, if you look at okay, well yeah, the nineteen twenties, we were booming, we we're doing great. Like one, that's about to not be great. <laughs> And two, what was that propped up on? Structural racism Mm -hmm. and, you know, a history of slavery and Jim Crow and... and Yeah, and even at that point, you're thinking, there's still, like, we're not emancipating the sharecroppers then. Like, there are still sharecroppers then. Yeah. It's propped up on on exploitation. Mm -hmm. It's incredible that they can do that. I don't know. It's uh, fighting with one hand tied behind their back sort of thing. It's like, we're also doing all this. Absolutely. Like, it, it just feels... It Sometimes you just feel like you're being gaslit by everybody else. You're like, really? Like, you can just get health care and you can just get, like, a guaranteed job and, like, you will just be taken care of? Yes. How will you do that? How will you... The, the way you do that is if the... The rich, the propertied classes are terrified of what will happen if they don't do that for you. If they think they can take that away from you with nothing happening to them or their or their like body or their loved one, like they will. They will do that. They will just take it away. Fear. I mean, <laughs> that's kind of what it is. Yeah, it is. It is. And it's it's feels icky to think about that. Like, oh, gosh, can't we just, you know work past this but like at the end of it no they are going to take what they can get because they are fucking obligated to that is the system that they have built yeah and the secret weapon that we have isn't you know because we say oh fear it's not going and threatening people it's building mass capabilities it's 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 solidarity mass movements that's what we said earlier that's our secret weapon 
That's what they don't want us to know. There's more of us than there are of them. Ooh, actually, I have a question. Yeah. I was interested, page 46, talking about people who are critical and on the left. He he mentions that sometimes people will ex- uh, exclude Cuba from this as, as not talking negatively about them, which I was surprised by. I wonder if that's just a product of the times. It could be. I think that mm, Cuba did have more of a... Mm, so it was a little more recently on the stage. And especially early on in its history, it was sort of like a cosleb sort of thing of like, oh, look at the cool bearded uh, revolutionaries <laughs> there. I mean, it All was like... hot guys down there. Yeah. I mean, it was like 1959, 1960. And there was such iconography. I mean, you know, they had great photographs and everything. And initially it was like, oh, they're not even Marxists. They're like just social revolutionaries in some vague form. Oh, that's right, because cause Fidel's kind of stealth about that. Yeah, and Fidel, honestly, I think was more nationalist than anything. He was just trying to get national liberation first. He was personally a Marxist, I'll say that, but he wasn't dedicated to making the whole project that until, like, the doors were closed, until America was not going to do any sort of, like, sort of cooperation thing, whereas they would do that with, like, Tito and stuff in Yugoslavia. I mean, that had already happened, so he has that as a template of, like, I can play a middle ground between Soviet Union and them, and we can do that, that's fine. But when that's shut, then he's like, hey, Marxist fucking Leninism, that's what I do, (laughs) you know? Okay, that's interesting. I didn't realize that was, like, I guess I, I knew about that development, but I didn't think about it in terms of, like, how the U.S. viewed that. Yeah, and I think that maybe in his time of writing this, a lot of older heads still kind of see it as like a more legitimate revolution for some reason, sort of, or like, Oh, it's a little countercultural and not like stodgy and old fashioned to be like kind of pro Cuba. One thing I like in here, uh, in page 48, he dives in on, uh, left anti-communists or what have you who will say, well, you know, I can't get on board on that. There's too many crimes and too many atrocities and all this. And I have to be associated with like a, essentially a, a pure movement that hasn't anything wrong. <laughs> you might want to like leave the United States. <laughs> well, because they're, they're like, well, this is why I support like, you know, good, honest, peaceful politicians like Barack Obama or like oh, Franklin God. Delano Roosevelt or any of the Democratic politicians in between there, the Democratic Party altogether. Like this is the party that like their president said. Yeah, there's no other way around it. Drop a nuclear weapon on civilians round up Japanese people and put them in camps in the United States. Not because they've spied on anyone, because they're Japanese. Like, do that. Yeah. If there's someone suspected of, like, leftist connections or whatever, like, ruin their lives. Like, get them fired and and blacklist them from everything. Cause, Cause people to commit suicide. Drop more bombs on the country of Vietnam than you dropped in World War II. That's probably fine. And like, you know, do Agent Orange to their forests because who needs that? Who needs a forest? Or like babies without birth defects. Who needs that? Just go ahead and, you know, ruin their DNA for generations. That's the Democratic Party. That That's the party you're defending. The, the, there's, there's blood on the other party, too. Come on. We would never defend the Republicans, but still. <laughs> like They're both bad, is the point. You can't get off and say, oh, well, these guys are bad. I'm going to support something upstanding like, the, like these guys, because they're not <laughs> upstanding. They're really not. You know, and I think that he later on will say, hey, look, 
communist regimes have done bad things. And I think he's pretty honest about the things that he says that they did badly. So it's not like a, oh, what about sort of thing of like, oh, my guy never did anything wrong. But he's saying, like, if you're going to take this pure sort of route, you need to find a different home. Yeah, I don't think anyone is equipped to do that math. Again, like, incalculable levels of suffering. Like, how do you quantify that? Like, that's that's impossible. But also, like, if you did the math, I'm pretty sure capitalism would lose. <laughs> yeah, I think so, too. Pure socialism versus siege socialism. All right. What are those terms? So he says, okay, some people will come out and say, excuse me, um, you should not criticize this country because this is not real socialism. I don't advocate anything that happened in any Eastern European socialist state. I do not advocate anything that happened in the Soviet Union because that was not real socialism, sir. That was state capitalism. That was whatever ism. That was not socialism to be defended by us or by real leftists. And anyone who's doing that is just, you know, on a fool's mission. We shouldn't pay attention to it. We shouldn't. We should ignore those. Those were aberrations. Those were dictatorships. They were bad. One, it doesn't matter. You're going to get <laughs> called socialist anyway. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. it doesn't matter. You're not making yourself more virtuous for anybody. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a good point for one is you're still going to get dragged. <laughs> mm-hmm. But for another, I think the, the clearer point, the better point that he makes is like, look, these states are socialist in their way. You know, whether they were doing kind of market socialism or what have you, or state capitalism, their goal was markedly different from capitalist countries. I think that's what you have to look at. And, you know, jokes about impact versus intent aside, you do just kind of have to look at the intent. If you have a government structure that apparently as crazy as it is, wants to feed children, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that other quote of like, wants to provide for the welfare of their people that's the communist one guys like that's what that is what is you know in their heart (laughs) they're not going to do everything right but that's who you should root for i mean yeah they're trying yeah these guys are he spells it out he starts kind of breaking it down like here are the characteristics you know communist countries were way more equal than the capitalist ones you know that's one of the things we that we were shocked at when we were doing our gdr episode Oh, yeah, yeah. The the drastic uh, <laughs> income levels, how much closer you were to making what your boss makes. And and, and he, he points out like, oh, the the capitalist press comes out and says, oh, look at these lavish, you know, corrupt. Yeah. Like the insane kind of living conditions of their leaders and everything. And it's like uh, they live in a nice apartment with communal amenities that other people enjoy <laughs> it's like can you imagine the kardashians in a fucking community pool like what the fuck you know yeah exactly and, and it's it's so tame like i i always think about in uh death of stalin seeing fucking buscemi's apartment i'm like this is just a regular ass apartment uh, <laughs> it's just wild he also kind of says okay you know some more key differences The productive forces of those countries are not organized in the service of capital gain or private enrichment. Like sometimes they will do some market socialism that does build up capital or some state capitalism that does build up capital and does end up with like in China's case, modern example, ends up with billionaires. That's a thing. And you can criticize, oh, maybe they shouldn't have that, whatever. But like 
the goal we shouldn't have so many. <laughs> yeah, the goal still ends up different, I think, from capitalist countries is that its goal is still in the service of the people. The whole boiling down to the dictatorship of the proletariat is it still boils down to the aim of the working class. And when the aim of the working class is that billionaire X, Y, or Z doesn't have his billions anymore, but is in fucking jail, that's what they do over there. And so you can say, oh, maybe they're repressing or maybe they're doing this or maybe they're doing that. But they are sometimes bringing fucking rich people to heal. <laughs> yeah, which we, God knows, we don't fucking do. Third, focusing on human services. Again, like doing all of this crazy economic reorganization while also taking care of your people. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. Is doing... What you do for the least of these, you do to me. I mean, this is like being a good human and gearing your society to provide for that. I mean, I fucking wish. No, that we actively go against it. We punish poor people. We have, um, what is it called? Hot, yeah, hostile architecture. Yes, hostile architecture. You know, again, means testing. <laughs> If you even want to, okay, I'm going to get out of poverty. I'm going to get a job. Um, if you're homeless, you got to have an address. To get social services and stuff, right? You have to have an address. All those things. You, there is a certain level of like required base level of income to access anything. Being homeless is an obstacle to you getting help in our society. Whereas in, for example, what we said in our, our GDR episode, being homeless was like the the fast lane to getting help. Like if they noticed someone was out in the streets, they were like, whoa, hey, yo, what is happening? Like what happened? Can we help you? Let's get you to an office. Let's get you somewhere where you can be. Yeah. Whereas in our society also, this is a more social thing, but like we're more atomized. We're more fearful of engaging with people and just like talking to them and everything and, and like figuring out where they are. And that's, come on, that's deliberate. Like, yeah. Oh, mass criminalization of homeless people. Like, yeah, that's not an accident. We're supposed to feel this way so that we think of the homeless as where we would be if we didn't play the game. Yeah. It's so we don't get outraged, too, because if you actually stopped and saw, you know, people who are struggling as people, it's overwhelming. Your your mind would be, be full of rage 24-7. And you have a lot of comforting things that are fed to you of like, Oh, well, some people prefer that. And oh, well, some people. And we've heard this and stuff. It's they chose this in some way. That's um, that's something to pacify. you. Fourth in our list of communist traits. <laughs> You're not trying to invade other countries to uh, open them wide up for capitalism. Yeah. And you're not trying to do aid in a way to like build the infrastructure for you to come in and extract from the place later. We were again, I don't know. I spent too many weeks researching the GDR, I guess. <laughs> and they were talking about like the kind of missionary sort of uh, young organization they were doing where they were like going out and like helping them like do farm equipment shit. It was like not so they could export it later, but it was like, hey, so you guys can like do this in the future. Just be self-sufficient. I was like, damn, that would be cool. Yeah, yeah, there's no ulterior motive. There's no, oh, you have to, you know, take this crazy loan that with these crazy strings mm -hmm. attached. There's no, oh, you got to convert to this religion. Make sure you're not given enough welfare. I mean, basically, it boils down to, like, 
the people who are saying, well, there's no such thing as, you know, quote unquote, pure socialism or true communism or any of that stuff. It's just, it's unreasonable. It's an unreasonable expectation. It's just, it does not take into account any of the world's complications. Yeah, I do like the last part, though, because he kind of shifts gears and is like, okay, hey, you know, what about like ANCOMs, basically, I think is what he starts talking about. Saying like, the ideal socialism that some put forward of like, free from bureaucracy, free from any sort of state apparatus or what have you, he says that's kind of vague. He's like, this doesn't try to figure out any of the problems that a revolution uh, has to take on. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, I just don't think it's possible at this point. Like there, there's a line here that says like, this is imagining what socialism would be like in a better world. And I think that's very true. You're in a world where you're not contending against capitalism, trying to invade you every five fucking seconds. You're not contending with being blockaded. You're not contending with counter revolution funded by the fucking CIA. You're like, you're not contended with yeah. any of those challenges. So like, of course you can afford to be nicer. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. I think that, on the other hand, if, you know, the initial impetus, if we're Spanish Civil War style and, like, hell, the anarchists pull it off, yeah. I'm going to go with them. Like, I'm a Oh, for sure. And I'll be the Marxist-Leninist in their ranks saying, like, hey, what if we, like, start, like, a, you know, fucking volunteer brigade to, like, make sure that we're safe from counter-revolutionaries? You know, I don't know. Shut up, man. <laughs> <laughs> Who invited that guy? Yeah, get him out of here. Uh, I don't know. I would be trying to trying to help. I mean, like, I, I don't know. I, I really don't ever want to be like sectarian of like, oh, we should primarily focus on ridding our ranks of whatever. I think my bigger issue, and I, I think this is what I'm interpreting Parenti's issue as well, is that we waste too much time in the weeds of here's this specific thing I don't like about this specific person in power or whatever. And they use those as, as to say, well, that's why communism is bad because this one thing happened. It, it's, he says this earlier about like fascism too, but it's, it's confusing the form and the like essence or something. The form and the function form and the function. Yeah. So saying like, well, because in this instance of communism, there was, there were bad things that happened. We got to throw the whole man out. And it's like, hold yeah. on. <laughs> I don't know if we need to do that. I agree with that for sure. You can't condemn communist projects overall by saying, oh, here's a critique of one thing you did. This isn't an accident. This isn't just like one guy had a cool idea. We tried it. It was it ended up bad. You hear that a lot of like, oh, well, we tried it. It didn't work. I'm like, well, then why the fuck do we keep trying it? Because it's not just <laughs> one guy. <laughs> yeah. The next section, he kind of launches into full, I think, full Marxist-Leninist here. He's like, okay, hey, you know, if you're going to be, if you're going to do this right, you got to seize state power, break up those fucking bourgeoisie who are holding on, and then use this state to fight back against the counter-revolution. This is his whole argument. It's like, hey, why the ANCOMs, like, are kind of living in make-believe land is they think that this isn't going to happen, and so... They're just like, oh, we'll just like, you know, fight back when it and he's like, you got to be prepared for this shit. You can't just like make it up as you go. Yeah. And he uses the anarchists in Spain as a specific reference of like, yeah, decentralization sounds pretty rad. Like 
that sounds awesome, but like it doesn't work. Like you are not organized well enough to do that. Like that's really fucking hard to do. It sounds kind of funny. Yeah, they're just like sitting around in their towns, like we're the best. We're fucking <laughs> welcome this town. Hell yeah! And then like the government just kind of stops by every town. It's like fuck you, fuck you, fuck. <laughs> gonna take like, just you one at a time. And, and it's like okay, well, honestly, what do you think? Like, what could be the ancom response? Like, how could we fix that? I think you have to get a little bit federated, and I don't, I don't know, I don't know enough, I guess, about these towns that were trying to be independent but like you can be independent and still work with other people to say like you have to determine a common enemy you have to determine a common cause and i i think that's enough i don't think you have to get into specifics of like well you run my town now you can just say like hey we're all gonna like beat up these guys right okay cool <laughs> i think they somewhat did that in the spanish civil war too is you had like big huge anarchist militias and stuff like they were fielding fucking armies i mean so they had some capabilities. It's not like they were just like, oh, I'm Valencia. I'm not going to do anything for anybody else. Like, they did cooperate. Yeah, maybe that's an unfair characterization on Parenti's part. Like, again, they were facing off against, like, U.S. and British-backed forces. Yeah, I, I think it's historically probably accurate in that, like, okay, you're in 1872, and maybe they didn't get it together that time, you know? But I think, uh, to me, I think it's kind of a shortcut to just be like, boom, bam, here we are. We already have a coordination of federation. It's the worker state and we just do it, you know? Yeah. Uh, but I think that, <laughs> I think that then the anarchists could come at me and say, well, I have a shortcut to when you want to wither away the state. It's that it's already fucking gone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, I think it is really just like, which one do you want to do first? And are you prepared to actually do that? You know? And then he, he talks more about the Soviet Union, kind of like their relationship with uh, centralization, like basically the choices they were faced with of like, okay, do, are we are we going, are we collectivizing, are we, you know, what are we doing here? And they kind of were backed into that by by necessity. Yeah, I think that was interesting because he's like, it may have been nicer and like more chill. If they had gone like the more liberalizing, open, bourgeois democratic sort of, or like, you know, uh, parliamentarily de democratic sort of system, more individual rights and these sorts of things. He's like, that may have been like a nicer society, but it may not have been the one that needed to be there to like defeat Hitler. Exactly. Like they, they were between a fucking rock and a hard place and... You know, I, and sometimes you get frustrated because you're like, God, I can't just sit here playing, you know, Monday. What is the term? Monday football coach. That's not it. <laughs> Monday morning quarterback. <laughs> there we go. I like Monday football coach better. <laughs> um, but, you know, like it, it, this is what happened. Like we can't just go. We can't just go around saying what if to everything. But I get it. I, I get the qualms. I get squeamish about them, too. God knows it. Like I, I am. I'm the strike master. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but, but like you, you can also see where they're coming from. I agree with him though, that could have been better. That it could have been better, but I think that that probably may have been, and maybe social thinking. Maybe I think just want it to be worth it. Is that you had to do that too? I mean, nobody knows. Yeah, you know, you do, you don't. You have no idea. I do like his next section, where he's talking about. You know, he says, "Okay, yeah, Stalin did bad things." He's, he's kind of tying this all together and saying anti-communists, you know, who are on the left, 
when everything came tumbling down for the Soviet Union and Eastern European socialist states, they started kind of, I mean, they, they, they met this with glee and they were like, this is good. An albatross off our necks, you know, uh, we, we're, we're free from this weight of all the sins that we used to have to play defense for and it's gone. Things will be good. But he says, actually, I mean, that made things worse. And this is an idea I've taken from him and really run with and, and internalized is because he, the way he puts it is this, that this gave the green light to the unbridled exploitative impulses of Western corporate interests, no longer needing to convince workers that they live better than their counterparts in Russia. The corporate class is rolling back the many gains that working people in the West have won over the years. Yeah. I mean, when were, were unions at their strongest? In the 30s, when we were trying to say, oh, please don't like do revolution like Russia did. And then when did they weaken? Mm, let me see. Pretty sure it's <laughs> when the Soviet Union went away and we we're like, oh, we don't have to worry about that anymore. Awesome. What about civil rights? Civil rights was explicitly one of the things that they got the term whataboutism from was because we would say, oh, the Soviets, you're doing this bad thing. And they would come out and say, hey, Jim hey, Crow. Hey, man. <laughs> Have you, like, looked around? And, and so, like, as a matter of national security, we had to be like, oh, well, you know, we have to wrangle the South into, like, not being as racist sort of stuff. You know, that. and there's there's so many instances of, like, that. It's not social contract in the in that sense of the word, but, like, the capitalist class having to make concessions to people as like kind of a bargaining position to say like, we're stay with us. You're still on our, like we time back to the earlier. You're still on our team. Well, what it made me think of, um, and I don't know if he uses this exact term. He might later. It reminds me of postmodernism. He mentions um, in the beginning of the book, the idea of, um, you know, people saw, the fall of the Soviet Union is like an end of history. Like we're done now. We figured out that one doesn't work. We're not doing communism. So like capitalism one, it's all over. And to me, that was like, as you know, someone who went to art school, that reminded me a lot of postmodernism, of like nothing matters. Fuck it. Like this is the world we live in. It's fucked up. I'm just going to make shit. I've never vibed with it. And now it's great to now have like a leftist reason to not vibe with it. But <laughs> yeah, no, it's fucked completely. It's just like, we're here. We're just going to stumble around until we die. <laughs> yeah, that is, it is the it's most nihilist. nihilist point of view for sure. Yeah. All right. Chapter four, communism in wonderland. That sounds, that sounds beautiful. Yeah, that sounds fun. That's the name of my new theme park. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, um, it's not that uplifting, it's, not. it's description in the table of contents is the internal irrationalities and weaknesses of past communist economies and the systemic reasons why productivity stagnated and reforms were so difficult to affect. Sounds tough. Yeah. Okay. I have <laughs> questions on this section, actually. All right. I mean, mostly like theoretical questions, not like look up shit for me. Okay. <laughs> I didn't look up much stuff here. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. Good. Um, so in the first section, it, it's talking about kind of how the the way the Soviet Union in particular was set up with central planning, it was inherently a problem. At one point that he says that like no computerized system could be devised to accurately model a vast and intric intricate economy to that. I say, I guess this was 1996 technology. Cause I think we can do that now. Yeah, we can totally do it now. I mean, yeah. Okay. <laughs> we can, and essentially we could, we could de 
You could decentrally centralize it. You could have different aspects of the economy all optimizing themselves and then networking to optimize the collaboration. You could do it, is what I mean. You could totally do it. Yeah. Okay. And then he gets into kind of specific reasons of, of disincentives for innovating. Managers were little inclined to pursue technological paths that might lead to their own obsolescence. Yeah, I mean, you've got a boomer boss. Not rewarded for taking risks. You know, you are guaranteed a job, so, like, you don't need to struggle to stay employed. I don't, I don't want to go through all these because there's so many. Sure, yeah. What are the ones that raised questions for you? Okay, so I think the basic thesis of, of this section is that when you centrally plan an economy, you're going to run into some issues, a lack of innovation, a, a bloat of bureaucracy, you know, not enough consumer goods. Oh, and like kind of coddling poor performing industries by subsidizing it. And basically, my, my question is like, what do we do about this? <laughs> so that's a good point. I think that it's important to note that they were centrally planning an economy at a point in time. So, I mean, they were, they were doing this at once. And one of the things I think you should build into your economic planning model is points at which you like mandate that you change it, you know, cause I mean, several of these are like, Hey, I'm not going to change the system because that would eliminate my own job. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think you have to do some restructuring every now and then to, to say, okay, that's fine. It's okay. If that job goes away, like you're going to get another job. Yeah, We'll pension you off to a fucking docket and wherever, like that's fine. Yeah. But like, we need someone new or you, you, you're welcome to do it, but like, you if can you get retrained, whatever, you, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, we'll, we'll pay for you. You did your time, but like, we need somebody to run the new system. I mean, like, I don't want to be teaching in whatever manner is being taught in 50 years. I don't want to do it. I ain't going to have any bit part to play in it. No, absolutely not. Juice me. If we're, if we're down the dark enough road to where it's juicing or that, just juice me do it uh, <laughs> you heard her here first <laughs> this is a living I'm, will now yeah exactly uh but like it has to so so i think uh what i'm saying is that centrally planning a vast or any size economy like this needs to have built into it ways to like schedule changes as you go you can't rely on ad hoc changes because your bureaucratic impulse is going to kick in and people are going to protect their what they have and you're, you're not going to want you're going to put continuously push back the date at which you might re, you know revise it instead you have to have dates where you're going to say we are going to change what we're doing and maybe you decide hey it's all working fine or whatever but like you have that like built-in mm, potential pit stop that's really interesting because I think this shows our, our different stripes here because you went with like a mandated, you know, every <laughs> five years we're going to change it. My answer was let's go more and calm. Let's be more flexible. Mm, all right. Let's go more on the local level and be like, all right, like what's going on here? You know, like this, this town is struggling with X, Y, Z. What can we do? So like the more Yugoslav model of like uh, the market social sort of like, you know, different firms doing their things and like coordinating or like the Chilean sort of like feed up the Chilean supercomputer. Yeah. 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 I like that too. I think, I don't know. I guess I was thinking kind of in their terms, what was the big, to me, the big hang up is that they plan this all sitting down in 
1930 whatever. And then it just kept doing that. <laughs> it reminds me. So I, I went to Vegas this weekend and I'm not a gambler, but I did try to play uh, roulette. And I got to a point where like, I'm just going to keep betting on black. It has to be black at some point. And like, <laughs> yeah. no, I lost all my money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like it has to work eventually. And I think that like uh, one big thing is like providing payouts maybe to people so that they're not like, damn, what if I do this and like I get fucked up in some way? Like it's like it's fine. We'll let you do something else because so many of these are like, oh, I didn't want to risk it. Like I didn't want to make mm-hmm. myself obsolete. I didn't want to help somebody else out their department at the expense of my department. I wanted to hoard supplies for my own group so that because I know supplies are scarce. There's a ton of this stuff that it's like, gee, a ton of this stuff honestly is like. It's the product of siege socialism. It's the product of being at war with the rest of the world because you're a socialist country and they're not. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's also a product of like having been in a capitalist system. Like you are not used to having a job being provided for you no matter what. And I don't know, this chapter was very interesting because it brings up so many of the common arguments against communism as an economic system as like, oh, there's no innovation. Oh, there's bureaucracy. Oh, there's uh, favoritism, corruption. Yeah, all that stuff. And and this I think this chapter is like, you know, yeah, there was some of that. And does raise questions because they were talking about uh, the discipline in the workplace. Mm, Yeah. And like. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, before it was the big, the term de vogue now of like quiet quitting. Quiet quitting, God. Uh, it's so obnoxious now to see it because it's just capitalists wringing their hands of like, are you serious? I'm not going to get more free labor from this person. <laughs> but uh, back then they were saying like, oh shit, like this guy's guaranteed a job. Like he's being as lazy as fuck as possible for me. Because he could just literally leave and get another job. You know, so I was thinking, well, it does kind of suck. Because you are getting pretty poor performance for not so that, like, you know, it's going to take you six more months to get your third yacht. But, like, so that the people can produce enough shit for themselves. But on the other hand, I was thinking, like, it's kind of good, right? Like, this guy does have enough security to where he can kind of blow off his job when mentally he doesn't really feel like doing it. It's kind of humanistically good for his needs. I think so. It's good on an individual level for sure. Like, yeah, I'd love to just like dick around. But like, (laughs) I I do see it as a problem more socially or more like you then have to figure out like, how do I motivate people? Like, I think that's when propaganda comes in. I think that's when you have to like, really, you have to be on that or else this kind of stuff will happen. Like you have to continually ensure you're on the same page. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Is like, what could we do for this? And I was, I was thinking that your vein would probably be like, propagandize, like make it cool, like inspire. Make it cool. <laughs> yeah. I, I think part of making it cool would also help alleviate the other problem in the next section of, of wanting it all. Like we talked about this in GDR, is that people took the things they had for granted and then turned their eyes towards, you know, wanting more consumer goods and wanting what the West has. Without realizing, like, that obviously comes at a cost. So, like, you have to do a lot of educating and a lot of, I mean, celebrating maybe, too. Of You know, we can't be sad all the time. So, of, of saying, like, look at what we have achieved. No one else is fucking doing this. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the brilliant things he highlights is that over time, people forgot how bad things used to be. 
They forgot the liberation from the czar. They forgot the ruin of, of the second world war. They forgot the oppression um, of the French in Indochina. They forgot all of these things. And so then the later generations were not as appreciative of it. And they say like, oh, that, those are our parents slogans, you know, and that was good for them, but we want more. And what they want is the good part. I mean, like they're just, they want it in addition to, yeah, yeah. They, they, they assume that they're going to keep what they've got, the good hard won concessions and, and, and living standards that they have from a worker state and everything, but they're just going to add to that the luxuries that are constantly advertised to them by the CIA, by the uh, Defense Department, and every, you know everyone else in the American you know sphere that's like pumping out propaganda to them. We just want like the good shining glittering facade that they are selling us on top of the egalitarian world that we've that our parents and that we kind of begrudgingly have you know fought and bled and died for to to build and i think too some of it is to blame on like the absolute dominance of the united states and like culture yes because they have these ideas of what the united states is like that's just completely false of just like yeah everyone there is is better off than we are the poorest among you are richer than we are and you're like i don't think so buddy yeah no and i mean getting into like kind of grander pictures of it it's kind of like i mean it's fucking sexy it's like you know the fucking cowboys and stuff it's like uh, we're fucking lone rugged individualist and we're like an adventure movie hero sort of figure we're the main character <laughs> and that's yeah and that's like packaged and glittered and sold to the rest of the world and it's hard to resist that especially when it's kind of forbidden too like that's another kind of psychological aspect of it is like it's kind of cool because you're not supposed to like it. <laughs> Your counterculture. I mean, it's like the horrible. Sorry, young people. It's like the horrible, like you know, the trads now who are like, oh, I'm I'm so counterculture because I'm like Catholic and like conservative, and you're like, no, you're just yeah. a dick. <laughs> so I think ultimately, when we come down to it, and he kind of closes this section, this whole chapter out. By presenting siege socialism, what we kind of started the whole concept with of like, we're at war with the rest of the world and we can't have all the nice things, but we can survive. Saying like that whole paradigm, that whole like, we can do what we can to survive siege socialism thing, allowed the Soviet Union and Eastern European socialist states to survive. Good. You know, they succeeded at that. But at the same time, prevented them from building past that from thriving into and we're looking at the economic system like how could we make this work because of the foundations that we were built on we really couldn't because we were dedicated to building up enough of an industrial base to fighting for our survival in 10 years against the nazis we really couldn't then you know add on to that like a little resiliency and you know change and 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 being able to to change directions and stuff like the seeds of where they started slowly push them toward and they could change along the way don't get me wrong but they didn't is pushes them towards this like stagnation where they eventually like end up looking at the west hungry kid in the shop window i want that you know <laughs> it's it's funny because i mean we we talk about socialist projects 
you know, being antagonized by the West and how detrimental that is to their development. But in a way, it's also kind of good for their development. It gives them something to fight against. It gives them something to to rally around and to, you know, have. Whereas when you, you know, you still had it, don't get me wrong, like we were fucking with them the entire time. But when it's maybe less prevalent or there's an uneasy piece, I'm wondering if it then you have to find a new thing to work towards. You have to find, again, that new... A new exciting propaganda. Because if you don't, if you just start saying, hey, these guys are kind of nice. What if we just start, like, doing their nice shit? Then you end up with the rest of this. uh, Oops. Oops, you're capitalist. Yeah, and you end up getting destroyed. (laughs) Okay. So, obviously, this is going to be a two-parter. We have a lot to say about this Yeah, feelings were opened up. So, here we are. (laughs) Okay. Join us next week for part two. We'll cover chapters five through nine. It'll be good. It'll be great. Uh, tell all your commie friends to listen to it. All right. Talk to you next week. See ya. And bye. Hey there, comrades. Just jumping in to remind you of all of our social media. We are on Twitter at Teach Communism, Instagram at Teach Me Communism. You can shoot us an email. That's teachmecommunism at gmail.com. Any of those places are good to send us an episode suggestion or a question, anything you think would be useful feedback for us, or just your admiration. If you want to admire us in a public manner, and you should, you can go to Apple Podcasts to give us a review. It is the best way to help people find the show. Love when people write and review us. Please do both. We are also on YouTube if that's how you prefer to listen to podcasts, or if you know someone that's the only way they'll listen to podcasts, send them to our page. And we have a Patreon. For five bucks a month, you get access to our notes for each week's episode, including the backlog of notes, which is a very handy resource for up-and-coming commies. And at the end of the year, all of the funds from Patreon will be given to local mutual aid in the DFW area. So, ain't gonna line our pockets. Finally, we have merch. Check us out at Public. You can find shirts and I believe also stickers and magnets and all kinds of fun stuff with catchphrases from the show or episode art, stuff like that. The link to that store is in the show notes, so check that out. Okay, that's all the internet. Join us next time for another episode of Teach Me Communism, where the class struggle is always in session. Bye, y'all.